The Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Land Trust. Have you heard how landowners are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use? Millions of outdoor recreators seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Landowners are partnering with the Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit landtrust.com/boa as in business of agriculture to learn more. That's landtrust.com/boa. Greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason, but you already knew that because you heard it in the introduction. The introduction, of course, was talking about Land Trust, one of my favorite sponsors. In fact, I'm so glad that you listen to this podcast and I would love you to check out Land Trust. You know, a lot of landowners around North America are making money by discovering the ecology economy. Somebody wants to watch birds, catch fish, hunt, walk in the woods, they might just be paying you to utilize your property. So do indeed help my sponsor, Land Trust. Go check it out. Today's episode, we're talking about the soybean. You know, almost 90 million of America's 350 million crop acres are devoted to soybean, a crop that we basically didn't even produce a century ago. Only about 100,000 acres of soybeans in this United States of America a century ago. We grew things like flax, oats, and then all of a sudden the soybean comes along and from 100,000 acres a century ago to almost 90 million or 88 million acres today. I have with me Mac Marshall. He's the vice president of market intelligence with United Soybean Board. He's going to talk to us all about soybeans, the myth of food versus fuel, where all these bushels of soybeans on all these millions of acres are going, what our position looks like here in the United States of America in terms of a global competitor, what's going to happen for the future of soybean producers, the process, the entire soybean complex, if you will. We're going to be getting to all that stuff. I got a great guest. He's a good dude. Uh, And if you tuned in, and a lot of you listen to this, I realize, but a few of you tune in to, to uh, my YouTube channel where you can watch this podcast. You'd see that Mac is not just a soybean guy. He's brilliantly handsome. He's like a bald-headed guy. He's sitting here looking at me. And it's like, I mean, you've never met a guy this good looking in soybean, I promise you. Anyway, Mac Marshall, welcome to the Business of Agriculture. Well, I have to say, Damien, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't also say that's the uh, the best introduction I've ever got. And I hope that that's a, a running at the the Chiron at the bottom of the screen. You know, best looking guy in, in soy biz. Essentially, I don't do very many things well, but you just saw it. Introducing my soybean guests on the podcast is something I'm capable of doing. Mac Marshall, Vice President, Market Intelligence, United Soybean Board. All right, we're going to assume that everybody in this, um, in, you know, is listening here, understands at least soybeans. We're going to get a little bit more into that because I have a lot of listeners that aren't even really farmers; they're ag industry people, and I have even people that are not ag industry people that listen to this because it's very educational, gives them a broad-based thing. Let's start at the basics. What is the United Soybean Board? What is it? Well, yeah, I, so I think we need to look collectively at the uh, the soy network here, right? So, you know, I've worked for this organization for just over a year. I joined it during the middle of the pandemic. And before that, I knew we had the American Soybean Association. We had the United Soybean Board, Soy Checkoff, and USEC, U.S. Soybean Export Council. 
So a lot of alphabet soup there, a lot of stuff to parse out. So I think the simplest way is, you know, let's start with the soy checkoff. Now, there are lots of checkoff programs in this country for a number of different commodities. Um, for soy, uh, you know, it's, our name is the United Soybean Board. And what we do is, um, as, as part of any other checkoff program, a small percentage of every, you know, of every bushel sold, um, you know, goes in uh, as retained by the states of production and retained by the national organization and then reinvested for marketing, promotion, reputational enhancement, unlocking new barriers um, for uh, additional soy inclusion in, you know, various, um, you know, emerging and, and novel uh, applications. So it's, it's about marketing and promotion. And then the international marketing wing of that is actually managed by USEC, the Soybean Export Council, um, in, in terms of, you know, global promotion, showcasing the value of whole beans, meal, and oil all around the world. Uh, U.S. Or soybeans, of course, are an export-oriented crop overall. Um, you combine beans, meal, and oil together. We export about 60% of that on volume terms. So that, that international marketing component is really critical. Now, one thing we don't do in the checkoff uh, under legal parameters is we don't lobby. We don't engage, uh, you know, with the administration or legislators, you know, for the purpose of influencing legislation or anything like that. Um, you know, every you know, commodity organization has some ties, I think, back to Capitol Hill. And for us, that's the American Soybean Association, which manages kind of the political realm of things, you know, things like farm bill, uh, infrastructure bill, connectivity, um, those sorts of issues, uh, you know, biofuels policy, all that being man, uh, managed by the American Soybean Association. So that's, that's the, uh, the alphabet soup of the soy world in a, in a nutshell. The United Soybean Board is essentially the promotional arm. And you said check off dollars to my friend, uh, like my buddy up in Evanston, Illinois, he listens to this so he can be smarter about ag stuff. He's saying, what the hell is the checkoff program? So in the 1980s, in the 1980s, a couple of ag commodity groups got together and said, you know what, we, we need we need to spend some money on promotion. So uh, these farm producers out here, they grow these soybeans. And so for every bushel that they sell, uh, you grab, what, a penny a bushel or something like this? It's, uh, it's half a percentage point of the sales price. Um, and that's split evenly between the state of production and the, uh, the national organization. So for yeah. us, it's a, a quarter percentage point. All right. So yes, half a percent. So $12 soybeans. So running the numbers here, that means you'd be at tw uh, what? 12 cents. So uh, that's six cents. We're talking about six cents on $12 soybeans. Yeah. Three coming back to us. Three comes to you and three goes to the state. Yep. All right. So every bushel you're getting three cents. What are you doing with that money? Well, it's a lot of things. Um, you know, first off, uh, as we look at how we're allocating, you know, marketing promotion, um, you know, I talked earlier about how USEC is handling our international market promotion, and, and there's a you know large chunk of the money goes into that in terms of you know showcasing globally the advantages of U.S. soy, and that's promotion activities. But it's also you know some uh, investment in in centers to help showcase that. So one of the initiatives that we're we've been undertaking these last couple of years is uh, standing up these soy excellence centers. We've got four of them globally um, in Egypt, Honduras. Uh, Thailand and um, and Nigeria as well. So the the goal there is really an extension of some of the existing marketing promotion work that USEC has been doing, where it's worked with with industry that has already been stood up uh, within within a, an, a destination market. This is now looking at the next generation. You know, you look at a lot of parts of the global south. 
and the markets that I just mentioned before, you know, these are all the markets that are evolving over time. We're seeing increased economic prosperity, which translates into increased, you know, protein demand, which means that uh, operators there in the animal ag space and then the food space, and then, or excuse me, the animal feed space, as well as crushing, you know, they're going to need to have that, you know, capacity buildup, knowledge transfer and everything. And, uh, and that's where the soy excellence centers are coming in is really kind of getting ahead of that demand curve so that uh, those operators in market are best positioned to meet that burgeoning demand. So that's, that's one component of the international piece. You know, hey, domestic hey, hang, on. Hey, hang on. You know yeah. what I think we need to do here? Sure. I went ahead and asked you about where the money is going. I think for the, the some of these folks, let's say that I'm just out here. I'm, I'm in the beef business. I really don't know that much about uh, soybeans. We better even go back another notch. You just said some words there about animal feed versus the crush. And now that's the vernacular that you work in every day. But the person that does not work for the soybean board or that does not grow soybeans is saying, what in the hell is he talking about? The animal feed versus the crush. Let's go Let's go back to the actual process, and then we'll talk about what you're doing to help increase demand. Perfect. I hear I, in, these, I, in these fields, and you understand why I'm doing this, Mac. It's not in any way correcting you. It's that you're, you're speaking uh, maybe over the head for somebody. Down the road from me, there's a lot of soybeans. In fact, I'm in Huntington County, Indiana. Soybeans are probably our number one crop. I think we actually might do more soybeans than we do corn, but let's just say it's roughly the same. doesn't matter. It's a, most people don't uh, uh, don't know this, but the average farm person does. We're generally a corn and soybean rotation every other year uh, here in these fields. So those soybeans get harvested. Some of them go in a grain bin. Some of them get put on a train. They get up on a truck. They go somewhere. And then what's happening to those soybeans that then you can influence and help sell more of them? So that's where we're going to start with. What are those? Go- what happens to those soybeans? Yeah. So let's start with the whole value chain process there. I think I think it's a good good point for grounding, right? So once once you've gotten the beans, you know, taken off the combine, either put non-form storage, but the next place that it's typically going to go is going to be at a crush facility. Um, either, you know, domestically here, if we're crushing here, you know, within the States or, you know, if they're going over to China or something, which is a large importer of whole beans, they're going to obviously crush in the, uh, the country of destination. But what happens at crush is, you know, basically the, the oil seed gets processed and turned into two co-products, which are meal and oil. Now there are obviously a couple other oil seeds that are out there. You hear about sunflower seed, you know, rapeseed or canola. And all of them, you know, we have different fundamental profiles, different oil content. So for soybeans, uh, you crush it and you basically get, if you crush 100 pounds of soybeans, you're going to get about 79 pounds of meal and about 18 pounds of oil. So it's roughly a four to one volume split in terms of meal, in terms of oil. Now, where we're actually using those end products, that's when it starts to get, I think, a little bit more interesting. So a, a post-crush uh, meal is primarily going into animal agriculture. About 97% of the meal that is used within this country goes into animal feed rations, primarily poultry and swine. Dairy to a lesser extent, aquaculture to a lesser extent, um, and you know, cursory amount going into, uh, into beef, companion animals, et cetera. On the oil side, uh, and, and this is where it's really fascinating because I think there's a lot of evolving uh, elements in the marketplace right now, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit. Um, but, you know, soybean oil used in, in biofuels applications, you know, traditional biodiesel, also the uh, emerging space of renewable diesel, which can actually wholesale replace uh, existing petroleum diesel applications. 
certainly going into food, you know, soybean oil, you might also see as vegetable oil, quote unquote, depending on the, uh, the formulation that goes into, you know, chips or cookies, snack crackers, you see it all sorts of other things. It's used as a, you know, frying as well, um, in a lot of restaurants. So there's obviously that food channel and then there's that biofuels channel, but then there are also more diversified industrial uses as well, where, um, you know, through soybean oil, we can, you know, help stabilize concrete or utilize it in asphalt applications um, or, uh, you know, in, in tires as well. That's an application that's evolved in the past couple of years where through research funded by the United Soybean Board, the soy checkoff, you know, we've been able to uh, develop and advance new utilization opportunities, basically new demand channels where, uh, you know, soy can take a greater hold uh, as an ingredient. So you wouldn't think necessarily before of, you know, rubberized tires utilizing soybean oil in it, but through the result of checkoff research partnership with Goodyear, we've been able to advance that. And the same holds true for, you know, concrete and asphalt. Um, uh, just, just to name a couple examples here. And those are all predicated on, uh, on, on the investment of those soy checkoff dollars. All right. So Mac, uh, here's the thing. We're just, you know, because again, we always pretend that the person listening to this knows something about it, but maybe knows nothing about it. 80% of a soybean bushel essentially goes to animal feed. And as you said, poultry and pork, big uh, dairy. I mean, it depends because they use other protein sources, like for instance, alfalfa, hay, uh, poultry and pork cannot because of their monogastric uh, animals. They're not uh, for stomach ruminants. They can't process hay. So that's why they need for a protein, the soybean. So the bulk of every bushel that we harvest out of these fields goes to a an animal that's going to then produce protein uh, for human consumption. So we're going to take that and soybean and turn it into a pork chop or a, a, a chicken breast uh, and maybe a gallon of milk, uh, as you said. Then 20% of it roughly um, goes to soybean oil through the crush process, right? Yep. It's, it's, the cr it's crushing that turns it into oil, you said. Yep. Yep. Those are the two co-products that come out uh, once a bean has been crushed. Once they're crushed, then you get 20% in an oil product or 19% as it were. And then that's where now the average consumer that I live next to when I live in the uh, suburbs of Arizona, all they ever think about is how they use it. Oh, I, I saw soybean oil at the grocery store. I'm like, yeah, that's a spit in the wind in terms of total consumption, in terms of the amount of demand. How much of a soybean, of the entire soybean crop ends up as soybean oil next to Wesson oil or Mazzola uh, at the grocery store? It's probably like 1%, right? Yeah. So uh, you look at, at our, our soybean oil balance sheet, you know, it's a balance sheet just kind of, you know, explaining, you know, how much is produced and where it's where it's ultimately used and consumed. Uh, and, and that that food application here in the U.S. is about, you know, about 40 percent, 40, 45 percent. They're about of oil, um, of oil, of, of the oil. You know, that's of the, of the 19 percent, 40 percent of it ends up being uh, for, in the human food Get yeah, going going into food categories. I mean, the category that that it's usually that it's captured in is you know food, feed, or other industrial uses that don't apply to biofuels. Mm -hmm. So you know, when you look at that forty five percent you know usage rate there, that's going to be inclusive of you know whether you see it as an ingredient in uh, in baking, for example, or uh, you know utilized in the restaurant sector, or um, as a, as a component for you know mayonnaise, salad dressings, all that sort of thing. Um, that's uh, that's that you know roughly forty to forty five percent of that nineteen percent, and that's that's just what you know what's retained here. You know, obviously we we have it going into export channels as well. Yeah. Okay. 
So the, uh, the where you're spending money or where that checkoff dollar that is paid for by the producer is going is for research, as you said, new ways to put soybean oil into a tire. Uh, plastics. I know we're doing some stuff there. Oh yeah. Um, and you're spending money on that to help create demand. By the way, you spend this money on research probably by giving grants to universities, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's uh, certainly, you know, nonprofit and public partnerships. We also work with private sector entities as well. Um, of course, with the caveat that if there's something that's reaching commercialization, you know, we get the, the cost recovery, you know, we're not going to have farmers, subsidize something that does become commercially viable without getting that money back so that we can reinvest it if it does become commercially viable. But yeah, we've got partners, you know, kind of all across uh, and of course, partners within the nonprofit space as well, you know, partnering with, you know, other uh, export oriented commodity groups, such as, you know, U.S. Meat Export Federation or USAPEAK, which is an Alex organization for uh, eggs and, and poultry. You know, those are all I think, you know, really critical demand channels too. As you mentioned earlier, we're using a lot of the soybean meal here domestically to feed pigs and chickens. So, you know, being able to export out value-added, you know, animal protein in the form of ready-to-eat pork or chicken is, you know, uh, it's really a, a really excellent disappearance channel that we have as well. Talking to Mac Marshall, Vice President of Market Intelligence with the United Soybean Board, I'm going to uh, ask him next about um, the whole myth of food for fuel. And then we're going to talk about the reality of fuel. You know, electric vehicles don't need diesel. Electric vehicles don't need ethanol. Not being mean, just kind of telling my farm people this, that there's going to be some big changes. We're going to cover that after I remind you uh, here of this little commercial break that you should be checking out extremeag.farm. It's by a new role I'm working with Extreme Ag. They are, uh, Extreme Ag is a consortium of six uh, high producing farmers from different parts of the United States of America, different geographies, different farming operations. One thing that they all have in common, they are experimenting and trialing new stuff, cutting edge stuff and getting some big results. They're also getting some failed results. So why am I telling you that? Because by tuning into extremeag.farm and they're cutting the curve podcast that I am helping them produce, you can learn from their mistakes as well as their successes. You can essentially let them be your guinea pig and say, wow, I heard about this new biological product. That's really cool. What is happening with that? And you can see the trials that they are doing. So Cutting the Curve is a podcast. It's more than this, that. It's video. It's audio. It's stuff that I'm helping them create to help you. If you're a successful-minded person and you're in the business of agriculture, you should check it out, extremeag.farm, and check check out all the videos that I'm helping them produce. And uh, you know what? While you're there, you might even subscribe and become a member of Extreme Ag. Okay, Mac, you got 51.5 bushel average according to today's prediction. I'm recording this, dear listener, on October 12th, 2021. Uh, just come out with the numbers said 51 and a half bushels of soybeans. That's um, that's a record. Now, 175.6 on corn. That's off our record a little bit, right? Because the Western Corn Belt had some some challenges on uh, some temperatures. That's over about 88 million acres. 51 and a half bushels per acre over 88 million acres. That, my friend, is one hell of a lot of soybeans. It certainly is. It's actually a, a record with the revision today. Uh, we surpassed the 2017 and 2018 crops. Uh, and as it stands right now, 4.45 billion bushels would be the highest production year on record. I was going to say, so that's about four and a half billion bushels. And there you are. Hey, Mac, um, 
Good talking to you. By the way, we got four and a half billion bushels of soybeans to sell. Get after it, boy. <laughs> what, what, what happens now? Well, what happens now is, you know, as the, as the beans continue to get harvested, I think we're about 35 to 40%, uh, you know, harvest uh, complete at this, at this point in time. And, you know, those beans are starting to make it to those aforementioned processing facilities where they're going to be crushing meal and oil, or they're making it, you know, down the river or, you know, across on, on rail uh, over to the PNW or down through the Gulf to be exported as whole beans uh, to customers around the world. You know, we have a lot of critical uh, whole bean uh, buyers, China, far and away, uh, are the largest buyer of U.S. soybeans. Um, I think we Saw a lot of that in the headlines over the past couple of years. Now, fortunately, that environment has changed relative to the trade frictions of 2018 and 2019. Uh, China bought over 35 million metric tons uh, this year. That's almost uh, it's close to a third of the uh, of the total U.S. crop size from last year. So, so that's uh, my question now on the numbers yeah. thing. We export what uh, over a third, almost a half of all the soybeans we make. Yeah, we exported um, about. 2.2 billion bushels this last season on a crop size of about 4.2 billion. Yeah, so, so we, we um, export more than half of all the soybeans we make here in the United States. And of that half or so 50 to 55% that we're sending half of that goes to China. It's, it's, uh, it's not quite half of that. Well, yeah, uh, no, it's, it's more than that. I'm sorry. So this year we exported 35 million metric tons to China alone and just under 62 million metric tons in, in total. So China's far and away, you know, the, the whale of a, of a destination market here. But that's not to say that it's the only notable play. You know, one thing that I found is interesting, you know, as we got the full year official trade data, um, you know, we set a volume record for whole soybean exports and, you know, co-products as well, if you, if you, if you lump it all together. But among our major destinations, China included, we didn't set uh, any individual records, at least not among the top 10 destinations. So, you know, I mentioned earlier about some of the investments that have been going on for international marketing and promotion. You know, part of that is looking at market diversification. You know, you can't have all your eggs in one basket. I think, I think the you know, trade frictions of a couple of years ago really brought that home uh, in, in the soy world. So, you know, being able to invest in other markets uh, around the world, you know, that uh, can have a growing preference and taste for U.S. origin soy and soy meal and soy oil uh, is pretty important here, too. So, you know, you look at our top 20 markets and it's really it's, it's every continent is represented one way or another. I mean, and some of these didn't, you know, weren't even really viable, you know, 10, 15 years ago. One market that comes to mind is Ecuador. It's a big soy meal market now. We export, you know, over a half million metric tons there. It's top 10 market for meal. Um, and, you know, 15 years ago, there was no importation uh, of soy from the U.S. or anywhere, really. It's, uh, that's it's really cool, but I, That's cool, by the way, Mac. But I, I live in Indiana where we got about 7 million people. And if I'm not mistaken, Ecuador's got about as many people as the state of Indiana, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's not just for Ecuador. Ecuador is an aquaculture hub, which is producing for re-export to a bunch of other places. So it's not just about what's consumed, you know, within the populace of Ecuador. It's what Ecuador is contributing out. So yeah, there's I, like a value-added component as you go through each And state. you went right to aquaculture because I was going to impress my listeners with my knowledge that uh, I, I've worked with the Shrimp Association and uh, shrimp uh, producers. India is one of the, is the biggest. And then you got Indonesia, Vietnam, China, and Ecuador, I think, rounds out your top five shrimp producers. So we send up them our soybeans, they feed them to the shrimp, and then they ship those shrimp uh, to the rest of the world. 
Yep. Essentially, Mac, what I'm saying is you out smarty pants me right there. I was going to be the <laughs> one that was sort of being the smarty pants. And then you out smarty pants me. No, no. I think I more of outkicked my coverage. You know, it's football season. So uh, I'll, I'll go on that one. Mac, let's talk about the fact that then, um, you know, that's cool. But and I'm going to be, you know, devil's advocate here. Hey, great. Ecuador bought a bunch of our soybeans. What the hell did you have to do with that? They needed soybeans to feed their shrimp. How did Mac Marshall accentuate that? Because they were going to buy our soybeans anyhow. Play the devil's advocate. Well, the question is, why would they buy our soybeans anyhow? You know, we're not the only producer in the world. We compete in the commodity market. You've got beans coming out of Brazil. You've got beans, meal, and oil coming out of Argentina. Argentina is actually the biggest crusher in the world and biggest exporter of soybean meal and soybean oil. So... What, why, why would, you know, someone in a, in a, in a third country uh, choose U.S. origin meal? Mm-hmm. Well, it's about demonstrating some of the intrinsic differences there. And I think it's about showcasing and promoting what those differences are between U.S. origin products and other origins. And this is a big part of the Dare to, Care, uh, Dare to Compare campaign, which is being, being run by USEC. And you now we're, we're, we're pivoting on some of that. But it's basically you know, comparing, you know, U.S. origin meal, how it actually, um, you know, how animals who consume it perform and reconciling that against, uh, you know, meal from other origins, including Brazil and Argentina. So you have the animal performance piece there, which the research for that is is funded through, you know, through checkoff dollars um, as well. Uh, So that's, I think, a big piece for moving that. And then, you know, there's also the capacity building piece that I mentioned before, right? I mean, you have like these industries that don't necessarily exist in a given market. And I picked Ecuador as a, you know, a representative highlight here, but the same applies in other markets. You know, going back, you know, what, what was needed to achieve the escape velocity, for lack of a better phrase, on, you know, their aquaculture production? You know, you have to have that dedicated you know, food source for it that's going to be, you know, that's, that's going to have, you know, high uh, utilization and efficacy in, in the animal as well. And by virtue of us investing in that market, doing the capacity building, doing the knowledge transfer, working with nutritionists, showcasing, you know, the, the fundamental differences in what, you know, we're producing versus other origins and how it really translates into an improved bottom line and animal performance. You know, these are all, I think, critical marketing activities you know, that USEC is executing on behalf of the U.S. soybean industry. I don't think that that discuss, the way you just said there lessened the listeners belief that you are indeed a smarty pants, but I, uh, I appreciate that. All right. So Mac, my question now is starting about 2009, 10, when we had this big run up, uh, you know, out here in the, in the countryside, we were getting rich. Agriculture had a big, huge, uh, Super cycle, which we don't see very often. And we saw it between uh, 06, roughly, uh, 06 till about 014, right? And then people started screaming. The same sort of people that signed petitions outside of Whole Foods. No food for fuel. People are starving. So you greedy people can drive your SUVs. Now, I think they're more directing that at ethanol. But um, the reality is, as I point out, uh, in that box of cornflakes that uh, doubled in price, there's about we went from three cents of corn to six cents. And so they they, they marked it up two more dollars per box. Is it really because of the three cent bump in corn? 
So a lot of the consumers, consuming public doesn't understand the, the amount of our product that is actually in their box of cereal or whatever it should be, uh, is not as great as they might think. What's your stance on this whole food for fuel thing? Um, it's not as common of a sentiment as it was a decade or so ago during our last super cycle, but we're hearing a little bit now because food inflation is upon us. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I, I think the historical context here is really important in, in bringing it back 15 years to the you know, first, uh, first decade here when we first had the ethanol build out, when we had the renewable fuel standard you know, get implemented here in the U.S., you know, that was actually, I mean, I started working as a commodities analyst in 2006. So, you know, it's, it's near and dear to, to my heart to think through the history of some of this. So one, on the ethanol side here, you know, I, I agree. I think the food versus fuel argument got uh, postulated a lot more back then, which is not to say that it isn't getting, uh, you know, bandied about now in, in the soy world. We'll come back to that in a minute. But you know, when it comes to ethanol, I think one thing that was fundamentally misunderstood there is, look, okay, you're putting a third of the U.S. corn crop into refining for ethanol. And people think, okay, that's a huge volume. Five billion bushels of corn are going into there. And that's the, and the opportunity cost of that saying it can't be used in, in food applications. Well, one thing that's missing about that is, okay, what happens once you run a bushel of corn through an ethanol facility? Well, you, take, that, you, you take the alcohol out of it or you take the carbo, uh, the carbohydrate essentially, right? And then you're you're left with still a bunch of leftover that that corn, the, the rest of the corn, right? Yeah, yeah. You're left over with the dried distiller's grains. Now, what do you do with dried distiller's grains? Well, it's a high protein you know, source of animal feed. So it's still finding its way into effectively the food value chain. And I think, uh, I think that's a nuance that was underappreciated by the general public, you know, 15 years ago. And now where we are, you know, with soy, where, you know, since the start of the year, soybean oil prices are up close to 40%. A lot of that is being driven by pretty substantial domestic demand here as renewable diesel, which I touched on briefly earlier, is, uh, is you know, we're getting a lot of demand for feedstock. Uh, for that, for soybean oil to be used in the production of renewable diesel. So a lot of interest from the energy space. Now, what that's doing, uh, as we've seen those soybean oil prices come up, uh, and I think a lot of that is, is promoting some of the food and fuel discussion we're having now. The, the, the um, well, I think another little bit of grounding around that. So historically, I mentioned earlier, right? You crush, you crush beans, you get about a four to one ratio of meal versus oil, right? So historically, you're always crushing for meal. So on a value basis, the rationale for crushing has always been oriented on meal. You know, oil has contributed maybe a third of the value there. Since January, we've seen that ratio fundamentally change. In the first quarter of the year, we saw that you know, long-term average of oil contributing about a third of the share, jump up to about 36%. You know, since April going through now, it's mid it's mid October right now. You know, we're closer to parity, somewhere between forty five and forty nine percent on a daily basis, depending when you look at it. So now, with oil and meal effectively being on a value basis equal contributors to the value of crush, the rationale for crush is changing. We're you know increasingly crush is being done for oil. Now, what does that do? Well, that's made meal a lot cheaper as well. We've had meal prices come down about 20% over that point in time. So, you know, if we go back a year, you know, look at the first couple months. You're saying it brought down, meal, brought down meal prices because it decreased demand for the meal. 
Well, it's it's more of that it's being crushed for oil, and you know, with if uh, you know, you start to have this meal glut uh, as well, and the price comes down for that, and effectively becomes you know some degree of cost mitigation in the animal ag space. Not mm-hmm. to say that there aren't other inflationary pressures. You know, oil crossed eighty dollars a barrel the other day for the first time in, in a couple of years. Um, you know, of course, we have like labor shortages and issues. There's all the transport issues as well, and all those are, are you know contributory factors towards overall inflation. But I'll say if we're looking at the food value chain here and the role that soy plays in it, and going back to what I said before, 80% of what you're producing is meal, 97% of that is going into animal feed here. Even as we're seeing the surge in demand from the renewable energy space for soybean oil on a volume basis, our biggest contribution still remains animal agriculture and getting into the food value chain. And where we're seeing that reduction in meal prices, that's where it impacts. So that's not to say that overall, like consumer level prices are going to come down or anything like that. There are all those contributing factors that I said before, but for soy, we've always crushed for protein in the form of meal. We've always crushed for lipids in the form of oil, just to put it very simply. And now, you know, there are two really existential challenges that I think the world has to face. And I'm, I'm excited that we play a role in meeting both of them. And those two challenges, not that there aren't more than this, but two, increasing food security on a global basis. I think that one is always there. We've always traditionally played a role in that. But there's also you know, energy transition and, and independence, looking at renewables. And I think the fact that we uh, in, in the soy business you know, play a role as a critical in supplying a critical feedstuff for the production of that uh, is 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 not to be understated, you know, we're playing a direct role in contributing towards advancing food security on a global basis and energy independence. We're getting long here, but I got to go with this one. Sure. We know that we know that we need to export these soybeans because we don't use so much here. Every other country, Argentina, Brazil, two that we know of, uh, Ukraine's gotten on the whole uh, soybean party. Uh, probably a couple of those countries that end in Stan, Kazakhstan, Wachbistan, Makistan. Um, what what happens when you know we we don't need this we don't need this for, for soy diesel because there's going to be electric cars. They're being mandated. I mean, I'm not being mean. They're being mandated. Like California says, it's going to be electric cars in ten years, and Oregon and Washington followed suit because that's what they always do. Whatever California does. Um, so we're not going to need as much and I go, I get what your point is not a lot of us going to diesel right now, anyhow. And then also other countries are ramping up their production. Do we end up just growing less versus this year being a record? Do we end up growing less soybeans 10 years from now? Well, I think, well, I guess to unpack a couple of those things there. So at one, I don't want to conflate, um, you know, the electric vehicle argument and what it, what it means relative to diesel, because I think fundamentally when we talk about electrical electric vehicles and mandates of, um, of, of, you know, a greater share of vehicles being uh, electric, you know, powered through electricity going forward. That's oriented primarily around passenger vehicles, which are not using diesel to begin with. I mean, those are using, you know, traditional, uh, traditional gasoline, ethanol obviously goes in as an oxygenate there, but it's the long haul fleet vehicles uh, and, and trucks and everything, um, you know, that are using diesel. And that's where the renewable diesel piece comes in. Um, you know, electrification is not necessarily targeting that on the same level. So I think I think the the, the end market there and the utilization of fuel, uh, I think that discrepancy uh, is an important uh, distinction to lay out. I think the other piece too is you know let's look at other vehicles that are out there. It will be at marine fuel or uh, sustainable aviation fuel. 
or SAF. And, and I want to make clear the S there stands for sustainable, not necessarily. Oh, yeah, you're, 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 you know, all of a sudden, yeah, we throw some more Toyota Priuses out here or Teslas, but your point is that's not a spit in the wind compared to these tankers that are going across uh, and these, these cargo ships, they're not probably going to be run on batteries is what you're saying. So we're going to be diesel powering all of the trans uh, the world shipping. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's part of the, the progress here and the advancement, right. Is, is recognizing that, you know, airplanes and, you know, ships as well as, you know, applications for home heating oil, these are all, um, you know, advancing, you know, I think next generation biofuels that are looking for more sustainable, um, you know, sources of energy. And that's where I think the bean oil uh, play is, is, is really critical because um, I, I can see us playing a role in, in all of uh, all of those uh, those channels here. But I think those are all materially different end markets than what the passenger vehicle market looks like. You promised, Mac, you're going to unpack some of my other statements there about the fact that other countries joined the bean party. Other countries have certainly joined the corn party. China didn't grow any corn at any really appreciable level until about two decades or so ago. Now they're the number two corn producing country on earth behind the United States. Uh, soybeans. I mean, is it going to get to where we are we going to not need to produce four and a half billion bushels? I, I mean, what's it look like? Well, we, so, uh, first off, I mean, let's rewind to planting season this year, right? Okay, we brought in you know roughly four and a half million acres uh, higher than what we did last year. A lot of that was predicated on you know strong prices. Um, this is not a record acreage. We planted eighty nine, I think, in twenty sixteen or 20, uh, 2017, I think it is actually. Um, and uh. And, and, you know, going forward, if you look at it all like on a, on a global basis, as we've had prices come up, um, it's also incentivizing increased production in South America. You know, Brazil is, you know, their planting is already underway. I think it's 10% planted as of the start of this week. And they're expanding area. The expectation is it'll produce over 140 million metric tons. For comparison, we produce, you know, just over 120 million metric tons this year. Um, so, you know, it, it continues to grow, but I think, uh, I think the emphasis going forward is, you know, how do we focus more on the, you know, not necessarily the volume of beans that we're moving around and the volume that gets into, you know, different, different channels of utilization going forward. I think it's about, you know, showcasing the value of U.S. beans and the U.S. soy complex here. You know, again, I'll go back to the dare to compare messaging and, and how we think about, uh, you know, articulating that to animal nutritionists around the world. Okay, you might be paying a little bit more for U.S. origin soy meal or meal crush from U.S. beans, but the performance uh, due to, you know, fundamental, you know, um, you know, nutrient profiles within that meal, the animal performance is, you know, palpably, you know, improved relative to, to other origins there. So, you know, there's more of an intrinsic value, you know, per ton of meal from, you know, one origin versus another. So I think showcasing that becomes more and more important. So, you know, we're not just, you know, in this, in this perpetual commoditized cycle where, you know, guess what you, you said it earlier, you know, there's what 350 million acres of, you know, row crops here in the U S they're about, um, well, we're not adding another 40 million acres here in the U.S. You know, we don't have the luxury of doing that, nor would it be responsible for us to do that. I think particularly when we're trying to uh, produce more and more efficiently on a small and ideally shrinking geographical footprint. Mm -hmm. All right. Last question from my man, Mac. Tell a lot about shipping. A lot of our stuff goes overseas. 
soybeans are about the oldest GMO crop, meaning 1996, we genetically engineered, well, we did it before that, it got approved for use, the Roundup Ready Soybean. I heard about this. I was away from the farm. I was a political comedian at the time. I thought, holy hell, all that walking soybean fields out there with the volunteer corn. Now you just go and spray Roundup on it and it it kills everything but the soybean. (laughs) Hallelujah. Europe, Europe does not take our GMO soybeans, right? What's going to happen there? Is Europe going to be a customer of ours? Is Europe going to not not be? What's the story with the EU? Well, the European Union, I mean, if we look back 15 years, you know, to the start of USEC, uh, we've seen that market grow pretty substantially for U.S. soy meal and whole beans. Um, You know, just looking at our cultivation practices here in the U.S., about 94% of all our soybeans planted are genetically modified, you know, with that herbicide tolerant trait, um, you know, the the Roundup Ready trait. Um, And, and, you know, that, that hasn't inhibited Europe from being a large and market for us. Um, you know, Mexico is our number two, if you combine everything on a volume basis, but the European Union as a whole is our number three uh, largest uh, destination there. And, and part of that is, is that, you know, they do import uh, GM whole beans. And, and uh, I, I thought the rule was yeah. that you couldn't import GMO crops, or maybe it's that you can't grow them there. What's the, what is now they, so there's a, there's a cultivation ban there. Um, on uh, on GM feed uh, food crops, but you know when trait uh, providers uh, in you know in the U.S. are looking to commercialize a trait, uh, you know naturally you have to get it approved for commercialization in the country of cultivation. So we're, if if a new variety is being if a new GM variety is being launched in the U.S., you know naturally you need to have approval to cultivate it in the U.S. But you also have to seek approval from all of the major trading partners, um, and and that you know requires you know transportability of you know feeding studies of environmental toxicity studies. Um, all of that is is part of the dossier that goes through to get approval from all these major markets. You know, in, in no particular order. You know, China, Europe, Mexico. You know, these are you know our top three destination markets. So when new trades come. Or, or, or being introduced and on a path to commercialization, you know, part of the uh, the hurdles that have to be cleared are securing approvals from those import countries as well. And so we're not going to have a problem. We're not going to have a problem with keeping EU as a as a customer. And from that no, standpoint. and no, not from that standpoint. And and even um, this past year, I think one, you know, it's a smaller market for us, but I think it's it's still a, a success worth noting. You know, Turkey for that same rationale was not importing, um, you know, GM soy from us and. Now they are. So, uh, you know, that market access piece remains critical. And we've got a great team at, at USEC, you know, who's working on that as well to ensure that as many customers around the globe can continue to in, enjoy a product that, uh, that, that, you know, factors into a lot of their domestic animal agriculture. Last point you want to make, the last point you want to share with anybody on behalf of Mac Marshall the vice president of market intelligence, the United Soybean Board, what thing would you want to tell? What thing did we not cover? What thing needs to be said that we didn't discuss about soybeans? Well, let's, let's bookend it all here. I mean, you, you've got an audience here, which covers, you know, a wide swath, you know, it's, it's, it's farmers, it's investors, it's people who, you know, are just looking to learn a little bit more about agriculture. You know, maybe it enhances their portfolio. Maybe it enhances their understanding of where agriculture fits into, you know, kind of the broader sector of society and commerce. So, you know, I'm just on a personal note, I'm from the East Coast. 
like I, I grew up all up and down the East coast where, you know, it's not a, a large, uh, you know, traditional row crop, you know, production zone. So why do I work in agriculture? Why am I excited to work for you know, the U S soybean board? Why did I move out to Missouri seven years ago and to, to get involved in agribusiness? Well, I think, you know, agribusiness is, is, you know, it's, it's absolutely critical. It's the one, you know, sector of the economy, you know, whether, you know, where, wherever you play in the value chain, where, you know, you materially have the opportunity to, you know, touch every person on earth. And I don't think it's overstating that everybody eats every day. Everybody needs food, fuel, feed, fiber. And so it plays a role in all those things. We talked about the twin challenges of energy independence and food security. It means a great deal to me that I can be a part of an organization, part of a larger industry and enterprise that helps advance those things, you know, globally. Um, I love my job. I love my work. Uh, I, I love the uh, kind of the ecosystem in which I operate, but, you know, I could be doing the same thing day by day outside of agriculture and it wouldn't be nearly as appealing to me. So, um, yeah, I guess just message for everyone. I'm glad you're, you're tuning in here and getting a little bit more of that perspective because really it all starts with ag. If you live in a city, we live in cities because of agriculture, but that's probably a story for another day. Oof, I love it. I love it. All right. His name is Mac Marshall. If they want to look you up because they want to learn a little bit about something, they have a check off question. They want to know something. How do they find you? Well, a couple of different channels. So uh, there's of course the USB, uh, our soy checkoff uh, website at unitedsoybean.org. We also have uh, usec.org, which is uh, the export council's website and ussoy.org, which is kind of our, you know, umbrella uh, branded approach here. And on those latter two websites, uh, I'm actually doing a webcast tonight about uh, the WASD that came out this morning. That's World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates. Do it every month. Got it 7 Central uh, on the 12th. And um, and then you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Yo Soy Mac. And I'm also on LinkedIn as well. Mac Marshall, you can find him at LinkedIn. You can find him on Twitter. And you know what? He's got a good wealth of information. I'm glad you came on. Thanks for being here, my friend. It was a pleasure, Damien. Thank you very much for having me. Till next time, it's the Business of Agriculture. This episode of the Business of Agriculture was brought to you by Land Trust. Landowners just like you are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use. Millions of recreators actively seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Owners of farm and ranch properties are partnering with Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit LandTrust.com BOA, as in Business of Agriculture, to learn more. That's LandTrust.com BOA. Thank you.